two things as we get started today. First one is this. I was talking to Christy this week, and um, a couple weeks ago, there were a couple of people who were sick and couldn't do the elementary school classroom, so we just decided that we would close the classroom, have the kids come. That was in second service, so you guys didn't see it, but, but we closed it so that you guys be like, oh my goodness, they might need some workers and some helpers in the children's, and nobody re- realized that's what we were doing. So now I'm telling you, uh, if you are so inclined to want to help out in the kids, just maybe even just once a quarter, like once every three or four months, that would be amazing. It'd be a great help. And you can see Christy after this service and talk to her about it. Again, you will be uh, live scanned. We will run a background check on you. So if there's something you're trying to hide, It's like I always say, we want people who like kids, but not like kids. Okay. You know what I mean. Okay. You just got to be honest about it. And also, I just want to reiterate what Sarah was talking about with redemption groups. Guys, if, if you are in a place where you're kind of working through some things and trying to figure out, you know, how God is moving in your life or the things he's saying, consider redemption groups. Again, it's not first come, first serve. There is the application process, but it is a way to walk through with one another the deep places where God is taking us, how he is working us out of some of the trauma in our lives to understand the gospel in ways that we probably never did before. So I'd encourage you to do that. If you are new to Element Welcome. There are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on the communion tables around the room. They look like this. And on the inside, on the left, you're going to get a kind of a half-page reflection of what we talk about today. On the right, you're going to get a bunch of questions to reflect on what we talk about today. On the back, you're going to get the verses we're going through. Underneath that, there is this question that says, this week I can apply this lesson to my life in these ways. And hopefully after maybe reading through this and going through the questions, you can answer that one as well. And underneath that, there's a place to take all of your notes that you so copiously take and love to have in your Bibles for the rest of your life. If you have a smart device, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. It just looks like Bible when you download it. Uh, click on More and then Events, and Uversion will come up by GPS in your smart device that way. And you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, announcements, and all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors at Element. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is James chapter 1, verse 5, and it says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Let's pray. Uh, Father, today we ask that you would give us wisdom, just like James said to ask for, and that you would lead us to places of understanding who you are better, that we would understand your glory and your majesty, but also your goodness and your grace that has to be extended to us, and that we would walk in these places of wisdom because you have led us first there. Amen. Have a seat. We are doing this series through the New Testament book of James. This is week two. If you have a Bible, you can open to the book of James, chapter one. It's on page 654 if you have an element Bible. And we're going to start somewhere before we get to the meat of what we're talking about today, because on the surface, it's going to look like James is talking about faith and doubt. And to be honest, he is talking about faith and doubt, but it's so much more than that. I think faith and doubt are important subjects for people in America to talk about and engage with. For a very long time in a lot of churches and the leadership, they were told people they were not allowed to have doubts whatsoever. I even saw one person tell somebody else that doubts was sinful in their life. And I always wonder when people say that, if they've ever read the book of Psalms. 
because the entire book of Psalms are all these doubts and wondering about what, the, what God is doing over here and what's happening over there. It's full of doubts. And I think what can be really good for us is with when we have doubts, we are honest with other people about it because it makes us so vulnerable to one another and we begin to walk through those things with each other. Uh, some people have used the words in the book of James today to tell people you are never allowed to have any doubts about anything. So this is James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. I'll read it to you, and then we're going to talk about it. Okay. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Sounds kind of scary, right? Oh my goodness, I had a doubt. God's not going to give me wisdom. My life is now over. This is why after this series in James, we're going to do a series in the summer called Never Read a Bible Verse, which is don't take Bible verses out of context. Read them in context of what is going on in the rest of the book and the rest of the scriptures. So I'm going to briefly talk about faith and doubt, and then we'll go move into what James is actually talking about in context. Uh, a lot of times today, people will talk about having faith in what God has done in the scriptures, what he's doing in our lives based upon the scriptures. And I think some people, after you read the Bible, would be like, you know, I, I think I could have tons of faith if God split a sea in front of me, if God led me around every day by a cloud during the day and like a pillar of fire at night, if he gave me water out of a rock, I'm like, oh, I'm thirsty and you got some water out of, or uh, every morning I wake up and there's bread on the ground, that'd make it really easy. But it's not because you look in the scriptures, the people that God did that with, and they had lots of doubts as well. I think one of the greatest gifts that God gives us is one another, that we can constantly come alongside one another and encourage one another so that we would walk in these places where we do have doubts and worries and fears. Uh, I, have a, I have a friend who a couple of years ago, I had to move to a cheaper house to get cheaper rent because it was either that or lose his business. So he's trying to find ways to reduce costs in his life. So he finds this house. He looked at it, thought it was great. The day he goes to move his family into this house, he walks in the door. It smells like wet dog. Three steps in, he has five fleas that jump on his leg. And so he grabs his newborn baby and this family and he goes and he gets a hotel. And he goes, I don't have the money for a hotel, but I have to do that. And he goes, I'm trusting God. I know God is good. I have peace about this. But why is it always so hard? Why does it seem like life is always so difficult? And I don't know if you've had that experience, but if God is so good and God loves us so much, why at times is it so hard? And I think for us as Christians, it's important to understand what we really believe. And what we really believe is going to be borne out by how we begin to live our lives. I want to give you some statistics that I talked about during the Songs of Ascent. And I'm just going to, not all of them, I'll give you a few of them. But this kind of goes into the ideas, I think, of faith and doubt. Like this, four out of five self-identified Christian adults, 81%, say they've made a personal commitment to Jesus Christ, which is very important in their life. That sounds wonderful, right? Jesus is very important to me. Okay, great. Yet less than one out of five self-identified Christians, 18%, less than one out of five, claims to be committed to investing in their own spiritual development. So my relationship with Jesus is very important but I'm not going to spend time with him. I'm not going to work in that relationship with him at all. Do you think that could lead to some doubts in our lives about who we're actually trusting? Of course it could. Of course it, it could. Uh, about the same proportion of self-identified Christians, 22% claims to be completely dependent upon God. I want to develop this relationship, but I'm not going to depend on God at all. Who are we depending upon? Ourselves. And that could lead to lots of doubts in our lives. 
The majority of self-identified Christians in the U.S. say they have confessed their sins to God. They, they have understood that he longs to love and forgive them. But very few, 12%, are serious about abandoning their sin and having total control over the life over to God. God, forgive me for my sin, but I'm not going to stop doing it. Do you think at some point that might lead to some doubt in our lives? Who are we trusting in our lives? One out of eight Christians admitted that recognizing and grasping the significance of our sins has been so personally devastating that they crash emotionally, so they just don't do it. And I think right there, that's a failure to understand the gospel. Because the gospel is, yes, our sin is terrible. It is bad. We, we look it full on in the face, but we understand what God has done in the midst of it to draw us to himself. This is, again, one of the reasons why I think we have so many doubts in God's goodness is that we're looking so much to ourselves and not to him. At Element, we talk about gospel communities all the time, that we believe in a faith community. We gather together with one another. We walk with one another through all of the things in our lives. But most self-identified Christians say they do not take their faith community seriously enough where they should be open and held to biblical principles. Only one out of five, 21%, believe that spiritual maturity requires a vital connection to a community of faith. And God has told us all this throughout the entirety of the scriptures, that you want a, vi a life of vitality lived with him and one another. You must be committed to people in a local body. Only one out of three Christians say they have actually had accountability with another Christian in their life during the past year. And I, where I think that, you know, during COVID and being able to live stream services is amazing. I, th I think it's great. But sometimes people don't gather together simply because it's just easier not to. And God calls us to be a people who do gather together. And it makes us ask, do we believe what we really say we believe? When I was a little kid, uh, two to three years old, I don't know, you know, you just kind of it all jumbles together when you're a little kid. My mom takes me to Paul Nelson Pool. Before it was really nice like it is now. This is when it was like the old Paul Nelson Pool. She put me on a diving board. She gets in the water and she tells me to jump to her. I don't know how to swim. I don't know if, you, if any of your other mothers abused you this way. Uh, <laughs> But I, I'm standing on the edge of this dive board and she's like, jump. I swear, I think I am going to die. I'm going to drown. My life is over at this moment. And yet, I jumped. Why? Because I trusted her. That's why I jumped. And, and I came up. I mean, obviously, I'm here. I survived, right? You, you see that. But there's tons of doubts. There's tons of worries. There's tons of fear. But I jumped because I trusted her. And really, when you look at the word faith, the word faith literally translates as trust. Do we actually trust God in the things that he says? The Apostles' Creed was written 150 AD, so not written by the apostles, but based upon the things that they have said. And this is the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. And the word hell there simply means the word for grave. I did a whole blog about it. It's on our website. You can find it if you want it. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. And the word Catholic there doesn't mean Catholic Church as in the Catholic Church today. This is before the Catholic Church was about. Catholic simply means universal. I believe in God's universal church that he is doing in the world. Now, there are churches who teach people who attend to memorize that creed, and that's not a bad thing thing. But I wonder how many people actually stop to think, do I actually believe that? There's this old baseball movie. It's called Bull Durham. 
And it's written by a guy who grew up in a church, but he comes very disillusioned. But the movie actually begins with the creed. And this is the creed. I believe in the church of baseball. I've tried all the major religions and most of the minor ones too. And the only church that truly feeds the soul is baseball. I think that's funny because when somebody's team loses, it's not feeding your soul. But what, we, what do we really believe? If you had to write a creed about your life, not what you say you believe, but how you actually live, how does your life live out what you say you believe, what would your creed look like? What would it look like? So imagine you have two people. One person affirms the Apostles' Creed and, and the Scriptures, and one, you know, there's two people that affirm this, and one person is humble and loving and truthful and bold and full of life, and someone else affirms the same creed and the, and the same Scriptures, and yet they're selfish and angry and judgmental and cold-hearted and proud, and they gossip about other people. Here's the question. Do those two people share the same faith? Do they? And this is the question that James pushes through throughout the book. What does our faith working out in our lives actually look like? Because if these two people believe the same thing, then why is it so different? If faith is so important to us as a people, such a big deal to God that we are saved by grace through faith, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, why does faith not seem to make a bigger deal in certain people's lives? Why? How can two people have the same faith and look so much differently than each other? And these are some of the questions people in our world are asking today about faith. How people of faith live many times causes other people to question that exact same faith. People who believe in Jesus think you're unreasonable if you don't believe in Jesus. People who don't believe in Jesus think you're unreasonable if you do believe in Jesus. And I think what Jesus says is very important. In the gospel accounts, he says this over and over, that real faith, we must be willing to follow where it leads. We must be willing to, to jump off that diving board when he calls us to. James 1.5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him, but let him ask in faith. What's the word faith? The word trust. Let him ask in trust. It is possible at times that doubt could actually be good for us as a people as we walk through all the reasons why we are doubting the situation and where we are. Uh, Dostoevsky, who was a believer, he actually wrote this, the death of a single infant calls into question the existence of God. Eli Bazell, who spent World War II in a concentration camp, speaks about his first night when he got thrown into the concentration camp. And a wagon is pulled up, and it's loaded with a bunch of babies. And those babies were then taken and thrown into a ditch of fire. And this is what he writes. Never shall I forget the first night in camp, which has turned my life into one long night, seven times cursed and seven times sealed. Never shall I forget those moments that murdered my God and my soul and turned my dreams into dust. And these are some of the questions that people today ask about faith and doubt. And how do we respond to those things? There's a philosopher, his name is Andre Sponville, and he talks about the beauty of people when they go into churches and they kneel before God. And he says he thinks it's so beautiful, but he said he would never do that. He says, because if I, if I did that, I'd have to believe that there is a God who made me and other people, and people are way too wretched for that possibility. See, faith and doubt. For us, the birth of every infant is about a God who loves people and loves stories and is writing new stories. And for us, the death of every infant calls his existence into question. 
And so we have in the world the same information to deal with. And what you'll see is some people will deal with the information based inwardly. How do I feel? What am I going to do about this? And James says we need to process that outwardly. We need to consider what God is doing in all of the trials that we go through. We consider who God is and what he has said and what he might be doing in the midst of all these things. This is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount keeps coming back to this idea that God takes care of us even when we don't always see it. Jesus will talk about the stupid birds who are so dumb, and he will say in Matthew 6, yet yet your heavenly Father feeds them. You'll say, God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven. Will he not much more clothe you? He goes on and he says, your heavenly Father knows that you need them. God knows what you need. He knows. And a faith in God is not untroubled by worry or doubt. Many times it's a faith in spite of it because we're trusting God in spite of the places where we are doubting. I told you this back in the Songs of Ascent. Billy Graham was once asked, when you stand before God, is he going to say, well done, good and faithful servant? Billy Graham's response, you know, the greatest evangelist of the 20th century. What's his response? I hope so. (laughs) That's, That's his response. I told you about an elderly woman who goes to the church reformer, Martin Luther, and she's talking about her faith and her doubts. And he says, well, tell me, when you recite the creeds, do you believe them like the Apostles' Creed? And she says, yes, absolutely. And the church reformer, Martin Luther, that we all look to and be like, man, that guy's theology was amazing, says, well, go in peace because you believe more and better than I because he has doubts. Elie Bazel, he says this about faith. He says, My tradition teaches that no heart is as whole as a broken heart. And I would say that no faith is as solid as a wounded faith. That's what he says. And when you come to the book of James, you have to look at how those first few verses are talking about trials and suffering and things we don't understand. And then he starts to talk about doubts and trouble, but they're not separated from one another. This is why James says, you consider, you count it all joy as you walk through these things, especially when we find ourselves in times of trouble. Verses five through eight don't talk about trouble or don't talk, it talks about doubt in the midst of them. But if you don't see that this is all connected together, you're gonna miss the point of what James is actually speaking about above all. It's easy to think this passage about faith and prayer and wisdom is just a general sense of that, but it's not. Is part of what James is saying is that trial and suffering can bring maturity when we consider what God is doing. What he says is, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. That is not wisdom in general or prayer in general or faith in general or doubt in general. It's when suffering comes and when trial comes and when trouble comes. That is when we need the most wisdom. And how do we get that wisdom? Well, that's what he actually talks about. The main thing we need when we face suffering is wisdom. Now I know, yes, we always say how you face those things is the gospel, but wisdom leads us to apply the gospel in those places. C.S. Lewis once wrote this, for the wise men of old, the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. For the modern, the cardinal problem is how do I conform reality to the wishes of man? And the solution is a technique. Now, when he says of old, that doesn't mean like old people. It means people in cultures before modern day culture. And the question we used to ask that people used to say is, how do I conform my life, my spirit, my soul to what actually is? And those answers would lead us to the gospel and that's wisdom. Wisdom is how do I dress the world as it truly is? Where today's question is, how do I conform reality to go with what I feel and what I want? And the answer today is a million different things from methods, techniques, surgeries, pills. And James is trying to show that the main thing we actually need is wisdom. 
when you go through normal life, you're going to run into a lot of problems. You're going to have grief. You're going to have loss, whether it's a person or a spouse. Maybe you have a divorce. Modern culture says, here's how to be happy. You just ignore this or do that. Here's the seven steps. This is how you change the situation to match your feelings rather than how do I change my heart? How do I change my life to match what really is? And that is wisdom. James, right before these verses in James chapter one, verse four says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete. Let it, let it, don't run from it. Stop trying to change reality from what it is and let it do the work that God is actually trying to do in your life. Let it be this thing. Suffering doesn't automatically make us or lead us to be better people, but it can. Bad things can make us very bitter in our lives, but in wisdom, they can grow us. I think when we're not living in wisdom, it's like, why does God do this? If I was God, I wouldn't do that. If I was God, I would fix it like this. Wisdom says, God, teach me what you want me to know. So I'm gonna give you two things to round this out. First off is why we need wisdom in trials, and then I'll talk about how we get it. I guess I've been talking about why we need it the entire time, so I'm just, just keep going. Anyway, so wisdom is how we will interpret life in spite of the events that happen around us, in spite of our doubts. Now, I know it can sound a little trite sometimes you try to say that to somebody who's in the middle of a trial, so, so don't just walk with them and love them, but then when you can have a conversation, start talking about these kind of things. Because in suffering, we don't want suffering. We just want to get out of the suffering. Tim Keller wrote this. He said, to a great degree, what makes suffering suffering and what makes trouble troubling is not the event itself, but what we tell ourselves about the event. But we tell ourselves about it. And he gives this great illustration of a hotel. I don't know if you've ever been to a hotel, not like a Santa Maria hotel, but a real one that has like lots of floors and like they have different size rooms and different nicenesses. And like you can sleep in a tiny little bed. You can have a really nice big bed. And you got five rooms in your hotel. There's lots of different things. So he says, imagine you have like a newlywed couple, like their first night as a married couple. And they go to a hotel and the hotel gives them a room in like the basement of the first floor. And it's a tiny little hotel room with like a twin bed in it. And I guess they wouldn't mind that. But you know, you, but you know, it's a tiny little room and it's not very nice. They'd be like, this is a terrible room. Why? We don't want this as our first night as a married couple. But if you took that same room and you offered it to somebody who maybe had been incarcerated in Alcatraz, where it's, if it was still as a prison, and it was, you know, it's just nasty and dank and wet, and they saw that room, they'd be overjoyed at that room. Nothing about the room has changed at all. They just had different expectations. One says, that's a terrible honeymoon suite. And the other one says, that's an awesome prison. <laughs> I love to be in that one. They received it with different perspectives. They're thinking different things about it. They both had these expectations of what they actually deserved. And I'm not saying that sickness and death and suffering and loneliness are not bad in and of themselves. What I'm trying to say is that what we define as pain and trouble has a great deal to do with the wisdom with which we receive that, how we consider those things. That's what James is saying. Uh, one writer says that we live in what is called a sin-forgetful age. For example, there are people today who are bitter, and they refuse to forgive other people around them. And there, there is, there's anger. And I'm not saying that there's not reasons to be angry sometimes about things that happen. But when they refuse to forgive others, many times when they talk about their own condition, they will say something like, I'm hurting. I'm hurting. Like, like it's medical. And I'm not saying they're not hurting, but that's what they say. Like, like if you came and you stabbed your leg over and over and over, and you went to the doctor and you said, doctor, I'm hurting. He'd be like, well, yeah, but that's not your problem. Your problem is you're stabbing yourself in the leg over and over and over. 
See, when we don't trust God and we doubt who he is, we get very inward focused. And many times our problem is not a medical problem. Our problem is a sin problem is what it is. In the same way, we tend to look at the lot of things that we say and do and we say, I'm a victim. And I'm not saying you're not a victim. I'm not saying things haven't been done to you. But how we respond in wisdom is so important to what comes to us in our lives. We typically tend to think that every single one of us ourselves are in pretty good shape. You know, social research has found that 90%, you got to hear me in this, 90 stinking percent of people in America think that in their lives, they show the type of love and grace to one another that if everybody else showed, America would just be a better place. It would be so wonderful. 90% of us think we are okay, but we're not because if 90% of us actually did that, it would be a better place. And it's not. We are seriously out of touch with reality. Because we think we're okay, we believe that God or the universe or owes us a good life, how we define it. There's this old book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And nowhere in that book is it ever supported this assumption that we are somehow actually good people. You look around the world today, does it look like 90% of people are actually showing love and grace in a way that would make the entire world better? No, not at all. We don't really deserve anything. There is a false wisdom in our culture that it holds to. And this is why trials and suffering upset us so much and bring doubts. One of the first principles of the wisdom literature in the Bible is that we should know that we are foolish. We should know that. Proverbs tells us that you know a fool because they always think they're so wise. And the reason you know someone is wise is they are not afraid to look and talk about their own foolishness that they walk through. Hitler thought he was wise, but he was a fool. There's this book uh, called Team of Rivals, and it's all about uh, Abraham Lincoln and his cabinet. And there were people in Lincoln's cabinet that would just go after him for making dumb decisions. And Lincoln was never like, how dare you question me? He's like, oh, yeah, was that a dumb decision? And in the end, that made him very wise because he was more than willing to look at his foolishness. 19th century Scottish novelist George MacDonald wrote this, everything difficult indicates something more than our theory of life yet embraces our troubles, the things that confuse us, that bring doubts. Instead of getting mad at God, at God, doubting his goodness, we must consider what he is doing. We must be thankful and see that God is showing us our theory of life apart from him is always inadequate. That's why we need wisdom. Okay, so how do we get it? Glad you asked. James chapter one, verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask who? God! Let him ask God, not your, not your weird friend on Facebook you talk to once a year, not the crazy fake news outlets. You ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. The mark of wisdom is to know that we are typically not wise. We are not wise. We, we don't know much about life and that God is far wiser than we are. So we ask him. And when we ask him, we actually listen to what he says. We don't just say, God, please give me wisdom. And then go do what we're going to do. Read the scriptures. See what he has actually said. Verse six, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man and stable in all of his ways. Is there any condition in us that we must meet to receive wisdom in our trials? Yes, there is. It is faith. It is trust, trusting who God is. James talks about how when we don't trust God, we're like a cork on the ocean that is just tossed around everywhere. 
That's us. We are not trusting God. Greek scholar uh, Marvin Vincent says this, the emphasis falls on tossing, moving before the impulse of the wind, but not even moving in regular lines, tossed into rising and falling peaks. The doubter of God's goodness is completely out of control. He says he's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. That literally translates in the Greek as a two-souled man. Uh, John Bunyan wrote this uh, book about uh, the metaphor of the Christian life called the Pilgrim's Progress. And he calls this person Mr. Facing Both Ways. He's like always looking the other direction. And this is the truth of what our society is like and who James is writing to in the midst of the hardship and trial. We too often are like a cork on the raging sea, torn from within, tossed about. And when James says, for that person is not supposed that he will receive anything from the Lord, it's very harsh when you read in English, but it's nonetheless true. This is someone who says, oh yeah, I want God's wisdom, but he doesn't listen to God at all. Why do we expect to live in God's wisdom if we're not gonna trust him and listen to what he has actually said? Because that's not wisdom. In context of what is being said here, the person James is talking about is a believer. They received eternal life. They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But it is the doubting of who God is, not the situation, that has made them unstable. When we doubt who God is, even while we trust Him for our salvation, we're never going to live in the wisdom He provides. Never. The trials, that if we're not considering them correctly, will not, as we said last week, lead to a deeper maturity. And when James says, let him ask in faith with no doubting, that's not that we can't wonder what God is doing. It's not that we wonder how this ultimately is going to work out in the end. Our faith is not blind, but the word for faith there is the word for trust. Let us in trust talk to God, ask him. And though we could doubt a situation, we do not doubt the goodness of God. You gotta hear this. If we want wisdom, In our situations, if we want to learn how to grow so we become stable and not storm-tossed, we must trust in the immense, omnipotent, holy God of Scripture and that He loves us. That is where we must be. And by trusting Him in these situations, God will grant us a wisdom as we walk through these situations with Him in relationships. James is not saying you can never have any doubt. He's not like a TV preacher that says the reason you didn't get what you wanted is you didn't have enough faith. It's all your fault. If if we had to have enough faith for anything, we would never get anything because we are all doubters. Our faith is never perfect in that. And this is where grace comes in. We can doubt our situations, but we trust God in them. Just like you can jump off that diving board. You may be like, ah, he's gonna drop me. I'm gonna drown. And boom, and he's got you. You jump because We trust who he is. That's how we walk towards wisdom. Think about this in terms of of the gospel accounts. When Jesus is arrested and he's eventually crucified, right? Everybody is tossed by waves of doubt, probably even much more than just waves of doubt because they all thought it was all over. Even though Jesus talked about resurrection multiple times, God the Father talks about resurrection through the whole Old Testament. And what you see is everyone who you would think are these giants in their faith all became storm tossed. They have the same issues that every single one of us does. And you look at this in all of the scriptures, from Abraham to Moses to Samuel to King David to Elijah to Jeremiah, New Testament, Thomas, Peter, all the apostles, all of them had all these places where they had all of these doubts. Even look at this one place in the gospel accounts where Jesus is like, we're going to go see Lazarus. And they're like, the Pharisees are there. They're going to kill us. And Thomas is like, you know what? We're going to die. I trust him. I'm going to go. And he goes and he goes. It's this doubting the situation, but not doubting the goodness of God in them. 
The reality of the gospel is that when they saw what Jesus did, it gave them a strength to trust that God is always good for his promises. And we are a people today who get the entirety of the scripture, something they didn't even have. We get to see how God fulfills everything he was always saying, how it all fits together. We get this great gift. And yet so often we don't trust God enough to live in the great gift that he has given us. In the end, when it talks about this double-minded man, James is not just referring to someone wrestling with doubt, but somebody, again, who has those two minds. That could be someone who only loves and follows God when it's easy and runs away when it gets hard. Or it could be the opposite. You only follow God when things are hard and not when times are easy. You just stop thinking about them altogether. It's that no matter where we find ourselves, we ask for wisdom, trusting and believing that we will receive it. But I'll tell you, the wisdom God brings doesn't always come exactly how we want it. It's that we walk through these trials and these things in our world and in our lives. What could God be doing with COVID? I don't know, but I trust that he is good. And I have been trusting a really long time and I want him to figure it out or let me know what's going on so I can get over this thing. (laughs) We trust and obey the leading of God in all things because we do not want two loyalties. We want one loyalty to the God who made us and the God that knows us. And this is where the gospel leads us. It leads us to a place where we understand that God has always been good for his promises. That God said that he would rescue and save us since the moment that we ran away from him in rebellion. And he makes this promise that I will give a son that will rescue people from their sin. He will crush the serpent's head. He will bring you back to relationship with me. And after thousands of years of doubting and wondering what God was doing, but still those people kind of walk forward and God kept bringing them back to himself because God is faithful. They come to a place where Jesus does come and Jesus gives his life for us, for our sin, which separated us from him. And he draws us back into relationship with himself. And that is the good news of the gospel. God is always good for his promises. And this is one of the reasons today that I try to bring you to communion every single week. Communion is a reminder for us that God is good for his promises. And that's the band to come up. And as you take communion today, as the band plays, you take that cracker. And like we keep saying, we understand the cracker is not the greatest cracker. And the grape juice isn't the greatest grape juice, if you can even call it that. It's purple. But it's a reminder of what God has done. It's to bring us back to a place of understanding God's grace given to us in the gospel, that God is good for his promises. We can trust him. We may doubt our situations. We may doubt what is going on around us. We may doubt the veracity of people around us who say they love Jesus, but we never doubt the goodness of God himself. Our trust of who he is leads us to step into places that we never would have before because he calls us to. And this is what James is talking about. In the midst of our trials, who are we trusting? Who are we trusting? We trust God. And in communion, it's a place to come back and say, yes, I'm going to lay myself before you, and I'm going to trust you here in this place. If you need prayer, grab Sarah at the Welcome Center. She'll connect you with one of us. If you're struggling through something today, and maybe you have some doubts in your life right now, and you want someone to be able to pray with you and talk about that, talk to her. We'll connect with you. We'll, we'll pray with you to understand the goodness and greatness of our God who loves us so dearly. There's offering boxes next to all the doors we give because God gave so much to us, giving us part of our worship. We do not pass a plate. It's always meant to be a response to what God has done and continues to do. And sometimes I understand giving is like a step of trusting God. It's like, I don't know. I don't have anything. Giving is, is trusting God in everything. 
Sometimes we doubt, you know, am I going to be able to give and is God going to? We trust him in all things because he is the one who rescued and saved us. And I encourage you to grab some of those sermon notes and, and look at the thing on the side. It kind of reflects what we talked about today. And then the questions you can talk to your family, your friends, your gospel community about. Or you can just get alone, one-on-one with God, and walk through those questions with him. And then, you know, in that question on the back, you know, how does this relate to my life this week? What is God teaching me as I walk through each of these places this week? And allow God to lead and guide you, especially in the places where you have questions and where you have doubts. And in the end, that you would trust him more then you trust you. You trust him more than you trust anything else in the world because he is the one who has proven himself historically to be the one who is good for his promises. And so we trust him in everything. And that keeps us to be a people who are not storm-tossed, but a people who are stable. Like last week, we talked about steadfast, hyper-standing. By trusting him, we become a stable people. But it's not because we are stable. It's because he is. So let's be those people who trust him. Let's pray. Father, this morning we we thank you for being gracious and good to us even in the midst of our storm-tossed doubts. That it is not a, a perfect faith that we must have that never has any doubts, but you have a grace that encompasses us in the midst of our doubts. And you lead us to yourself. I ask that you would move us to understand the security and solidness of who you are and your promises. That you would teach us to be those who walk with you, who honor you. Even when we are doubting a situation that we have come to a place where we don't doubt you or your goodness. I ask that you would move us to walk with, to follow you, in all things, because you are good. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen. And Mark closed the blinds. And as he does, um, just take a couple moments and be honest enough with God about either the places where you have been foolish thinking you were wise or the places where you have had doubts in your lives or maybe the places you have doubts even right now and what it means to truly trust God in those places. As you come and you, and you take communion and you sing some of these songs, allow God to work on your own heart, your own mind, your own soul as he draws you back to himself to trust who he is even in the midst of our doubts because he is good.